This episode is sponsored by Enriched Superfoods. Enriched is my go-to store for the most powerful, most pure superfoods on the plain et. They've got all the good stuff from maca to matcha, from shilajit to powdered greens. But you know what I love the most? I love the mushrooms. Now I know what most of you are thinking, get on with the show, right? But I know what else you're thinking. You're thinking, how can I get better at strangling people? Us jiu-jitsu guys, we're all the same. We want to be better, we want to be badder. Well, being better requires two things, learning more stuff and being able to execute more stuff. And Enriched has got you covered with what I'm calling the white basement jiu-jitsu super stack. First is lion's mane mushroom to supercharge memory, focus and clarity and even better, give a neurotrophic boost literally helping you grow new jiu-jitsu brain cells. Now, a jiu-jitsu super brain is all well and good, but if you can't execute on the mat, then it don't mean jack. That's why the second half of the super stack is the legendary Cordyceps CS4 mushroom extract, scientifically proven to offer heroic levels of stamina and energy, as well as improved lung function, actually helping you breathe better while you stop other people from breathing at all. Go to enriched.co, that's E-N-R-I-C-H-D.co, and use the promo code WhiteBasementPod for a 10% discount across the whole site. Want to get more taps in more rounds and more respect from more people? Then get super stacked. Go to enriched.co and use the promo code WhiteBasementPod. In terms of how I approach my training, I think I've learned a lot along the way about being selective with training partners and knowing that you can turn down a role if if you don't think it's going to be appropriate for you. And I know some people might get offended by that, but I think self-preservation is more important. You know, there's um, some people who don't know how to train with smaller people or how to train with women. Um, and for me, that's just not worth it. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the White Basement Podcast. Today I am joined by Emma Percy. She's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu competitor and teacher who most recently won the IBJJF European Championships in Paris at Brown Belt. She's won and medaled at multiple national and international competitions, both in and out of the gi, and has recently set up Grange Jiu-Jitsu, a new club in Ealing, London, with Rohan and Akhil Bist. Emma. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, nice to have you on. Uh, Euros is a big is a big win. You've mm-hmm. done it quite a few times, right? Yeah, I think it was my, how many times had I done it? So 2018, 2019, 2020, 2022 and 2023. So it was the fifth one I'd been to and I'd done the absolute at all of those as well. So yeah, there was a lot, a lot of attempts to try and win gold and I finally managed it this time and what weight class do you fight in a light feather so like 52 ish so is there is there a weight class under that for women there is there's rooster weight but very often there's nobody in that that weight class um I don't think I could make rooster weight anymore (laughs) but then and you fight the absolutes as well yeah always yeah wow well you know if I can do the absolute if I'm yeah yes Yeah, that's pretty hardcore. So, um, yeah, one of the one of the, the the things that I wanted to talk to you about um, was 
training, mm-hmm. um, not so much competing because obviously for, for a lot of comps, you, you'll get someone that's your kind of size. But It's quite hard actually to, to find people my weight. I very often do have to go up in weight, right. especially at brown belt. It's only been, I think I've done three competitions where I fought in my own weight class since I got my brown. Out of how many? Out of about 12 competitions. Oh, okay. So I've, I've fought in the last year, mostly at featherweight, sometimes at light and a couple of times at middle as well. Just okay. to get matches. Yeah, so I mean, I, I I haven't competed that much, but I mean, I struggle to to get yeah. people that are lighter weights. Are you, you fighting masters? Yes. Yeah. So I think, you know, as people get older, they get fatter, right? So it's, <laughs> it's kind of difficult to find yeah. thin light people as the as the age goes up. But yeah, one of the one of the things that I wanted to 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 really kind of quiz you about was training as a woman mm-hmm. and training at a light body weight. Because obviously most gyms that you will go into, most classes, most clubs is predominantly guys. Yep. Most guys are probably 75 to 85 mm-hmm. kilos, something like that. So how how have you sort of approached training um, in terms of selecting training partners, injuries, stuff you do or don't do? Because I think a lot of people... Um, Probably, especially women who are thinking about starting jujitsu, it can be uh, probably a little bit intimidating thinking, oh, I'm going to walk into a gym. There's one mm. other girl there. She's got cauliflower ear. And then there's just a bunch of sweaty dudes. So you, you started in 2014. Yeah, that's right. So n- nearly 10 years, mm-hmm. nine years ago. Um, so, yeah, how did, you, how did you sort of get started and how have you approached your, your training? Um, in terms of how I approach my training, I think I've learned a lot along the way about being selective with training partners and knowing that you can turn down a role if, if you don't think it's going to be appropriate for you. And I know some people might get offended by that, but I think self-preservation is more important. You know, there's, um, some people who don't know how to train with smaller people or how to train with women. Um, and for me, that's just not worth it. Um, but I didn't, know that early on I didn't really know that I could turn down roles and so you know I, I feel like I've wasted a lot of time in training just trying to keep myself safe um, rather than sort of progressing in my jiu-jitsu because I've been rolling with the wrong training partners whereas now I'm a lot fussier I'm a lot less a lot less scared to offend anybody by by turning down around um, but then also I think you know you, I think you naturally develop a style um, when you're smaller that that works for you so sort of sneaky crafty jiu-jitsu as opposed to strength-based because um, I think I'm relatively strong for my size for a woman my size I, I am strong um, but my training very often isn't against women my size and so you know I'm not going to do a strength-based game it's going to be sort of speed-based flexibility-based and like sneaky kind of jiu-jitsu um, mm. yeah I mean there's obviously this this recent um story that's been in the media this guy who broke his yeah. neck um and yeah i was discussing with with uh, gosha my wife who trains also um and it's, it's something that i've that i've talked about on the podcast a few times but i the the, the thing that i've found with jiu-jitsu because i've trained at a, a few clubs i started with eddie Cohn, um and then obviously trained at mill hill with nick trained to be resistance when he was in east finchley at the beginning um and a few times at um, Boreham Wood um, with with Seymour and now Sandeep. But I, I mean, I don't know with you guys. Maybe maybe you'll you'll tell me differently. But from doing 
from doing other martial arts previously, um, whenever we used to get beginners in, we their first sort of couple of classes, two, three, four classes was always just like take them aside and go through all the really basic stuff mm-hmm. like how to make a fist so you're not going to break your hand the first yeah. time you try and punch a pad or you know never do this with your knees or never do this with your back or whatever and i i've i haven't really ever come across that in jiu-jitsu where you say listen if you're new or if you are a white belt and you haven't trained at this club before your first class or your first two classes is go and sit in the corner with that purple belt mm. and once you know all the stupid stuff that's going to injure you for the first 18 months of your whole training or injure someone else, then you can then you can come and train. Um, I mean, do, do you think that that's something that's practical, that's something that should be encouraged or, or more it is just like well, let people kind of find their own way and the instructor just keep an eye on them yeah i think it's really strange in brazilian jiu-jitsu how often things go unsaid and it's like oh people should just work it out for themselves and i don't agree with that at all um i've said it i've said it previously that um, the idea of a mat enforcer for example is absolutely awful to me i don't think it does its job at all so say you get some new guy come in and new guys new women as well um, they've got the fight or flight and they might go absolutely crazy. They're like completely tense all the time. Um, and it doesn't matter who they're with. Because of that adrenaline, because of that fight or flight response, um, they might go absolutely crazy on someone really small, do something dangerous, give really odd reactions. And what you often see is this sort of mat enforcer come in and be like, that guy just beat up a woman. Now I'm going to beat him up. And as far as I can see, all that does is confirm the fact that if you're bigger and stronger or better than someone then it's right to beat them up. Um, And so I don't think that's helpful at all. Whereas all that needs to happen is communication and you speak to those people. And so for beginners, there is so much, they're so nervous and they do need that communication of how to roll with other people and again, keep themselves safe. Um, So at Grange, what we're kind of planning on doing, because we have three instructors in every class, is we'll have one dedicated instructor to actually teach the class, one sort of UK, and then one dedicated beginner's instructor within a class. So depending on who shows up to that class, if there's a brand new person or a brand new group of people, then that instructor will stay with them and go through those basics. When other people are doing the technique, then maybe those brand new people won't be doing the same technique as everyone else or they'll be doing a modified version um, with a focus on the very basics and keeping themselves and their partner safe as well. So that's something we're quite excited to do. Um, you know, yeah. from from day one is kind of have that yeah, dedication think, for for beginners. Yeah, if you if you sort of build that that into the way the club runs, mm-hmm. um, I think also the, the the kind of benefit that 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 you get is that everybody who comes up, you know, training with you will will take on that kind of mode of training where oh, there's a some a new student. You guys are on holiday, so there's only one instructor yeah. for that class. And they'll just say, oh, I'm going to go and sit in the corner with this new person and look after them and make sure they're right. Because, you know, that's the... Yeah, that's the culture of the Of club. the gym, yeah. yeah. But I think, I think that's, that's probably... Um, I think that's probably because jiu-jitsu now has, has become 
a very sort of international thing and it's and it's obviously morphing and changing from its sort of original Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Yeah. So there's a lot of out of the gi stuff and leg locks and everything, which wasn't really kind of in the original incarnation of it. But I think the I think the sort of um from what I can understand, the original way of teaching of you know the Brazilians was yeah, you just turn up and like that you just we just strangle you for a few months and yeah. see whether you stay you'll, or not. You'll pick it up after a while. We'll yeah. filter out the weak. That sort of attitude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so I, I think probably you know that 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 is uh, it can uh, evolve a little bit to 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 use more considered ways of of teaching. Yeah, and I think like we we're we're big Danaher fans. Uh, me and the boys, um, and we know that when when he teaches before sparring, he always goes through the rules and his rules as well because i know he does he sort of banned tanya toshi in this gym i don't agree with that because i love a tanya toshi but there's certain things that he doesn't allow and he explains why so he reminds people you know when you take the back you go off to the side you don't drag someone backwards over their knees things like that and i think that is so important because saying it once isn't enough yeah um but reminding your expectations every single class yeah um, and it, it just keeps everyone, it keeps everyone safe. Yeah, I think even, you know, sometimes when we were at Mill Hill, Nick used to, before sort of sparring, Nick just used to say, look after your training partners. Yeah. And just even that was, you know, not like, see if you can hit the technique that I've taught or, you mm -hmm. know, da -da -da, we're getting ready for comp. It was just like, look after your training partner. And yeah, I think I think it is important. I mean, as you say, especially when you get, when you get uh, new people in, because, you know, they always spaz, right? I mean, it's yeah. just and it's not their natural, fault. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And I, I think we do have to, to remember that. I know I've I've been very guilty over the years of being like, that guy went too hard on me. Can't he see he's forty kilos heavier or whatever? But now I'm a lot more aware that that guy's new yeah. and this has never happened before, and he's in this whole new world of. And I'm not going to train with him for at least six weeks. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's another thing is I I don't uh, spar with brand new white belts. Um, yeah, because yeah. it's just it's just not worth it for yeah, me. Yeah, it is a it is a you're asking for for trouble. Yeah. So, um, in terms of your um, selecting training partners, mm -hmm. do you so so if you let's say you have a class where you've got a you know there's a big group of people and you've got guys and girls that are at a lower level, similar level, higher level. Mm -hmm similar weight a little bit heavier do you, would you tend to to just sort of try and pick up the people that are closest to who you would face in competition or do you actually yeah. look for no i'm going to sort of try and work this against someone a bit heavier or i'm going to practice this against i don't necessarily look at going heavier i always try to prioritize rolling with lighter people just because even if someone is like a lower level um, and I think, oh, I could hit this on them. I just think the wear and tear on the body is so much. Because even if you also get in the better of someone, but they're 30 kilos heavier and you're bearing that weight all the time or having their sudden, you know, them suddenly drop their weight on you, things like that. I feel that puts so much strain on the body when you're training regularly. Um, and so I do, and this hasn't always been the case for me, but recently I've really prioritized rolling with lighter weights and mm. obviously once you once you're at a gym and you know all your training partners you do get a sense of who are the best rounds for you like there's some heavier guys I train with who I know are so responsible and they'll have really fast movement based rounds with me so I'll always select them if if I have the opportunity to select my training partners yeah um but overall if I like look down the room and I can choose my training partners I will go for the lightest people um 
just be just because it's so unrealistic to train with someone much much heavier than me yeah i mean i think i think it's sensible i, I i'm the same i always try to avoid the whoever's heaviest i avoid the most yeah just you know whether they're good or not good or whatever because yeah an accidental slip or they just need to base on you with their elbow yeah. and they're 100 kilos it's a problem right yeah exactly. your body's not designed to to deal with that I've, something that I've, I've said on the podcast before is that humans are the only animal that travel faster than their body is designed for yeah but it's kind of rolling with someone heavy is, is a similar problem, right? Mm-hmm. If someone who's double your body weight falls on you, it's like having a car accident at yeah. 20 miles an hour. I mean, it's not, it's not it's the best. It's ri- ridiculous what we do in this sport, really, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> but then yeah, there are exceptions, though. I mean, there are, there are some people who are like considerably heavier who I absolutely love to roll with. Um, in Wales, there's Jamie Hughes. I mean, he's, I don't know what he weighs now, um, but, he, you know, the guy's absolutely massive. And he's one of the best rounds I've ever had. He goes so fast. It's like, it feels like he's a light featherweight because he's so controlled. um, But he can still roll at a really high pace. So I used to have the best rounds with him. But that that is an exception to the rule. On the whole, I wouldn't want to be training with someone that weight. It's just that he is that good um, in his approach to training. And and another thing then that... that, um, curious whether you whether you sort of have have found is that women generally have a different game Mm -hmm. to men more sort of flexibility based hips legs much more danger from the guard whereas guys are maybe a little bit more top pressure and upper body and grips and yeah i mean you you do get a lot of women who play very top heavy games as well though you get a lot of like strong passes but yeah i I think the sort of problems i've come up against in competition against women I'm like oh I'm not used to this in training like the the tricky guards that they play and where you think you would you know normally be passed with a guy you're not not even close to being passed with a with a woman so yeah there's definitely a different style and that's where I think a lot of people think that like women's only training is kind of pointless but I think just that opportunity to train consistently to spar consistently with women and get those reactions is really important Mm. um and like at our club, we're not going to have women's only initially because we're, we're sort of renting a space, so we have to like prioritize um, uh, mixed training. Um, but I think having a female instructor will mean that we have lots of women on the mat. Yeah. Um, so there's always going to be opportunities to to spar with other women there. And so, what what does your um, your normal training look like in terms of? How many times in a week and what you would be doing for your jujitsu, but also for your sort of supplementary training, if you do any, and mm-hmm. recovery and, and stuff like that. What what does your normal training week look like? Um, when I'm at work, which is most of the year, obviously. I mean, I work in a private school, so I get a lot of time off, which is great. Um, but yeah, when I'm at work, I can obviously only train evenings. Um, so I will train every evening and I used to do doubles, but now I tend to just do one class in the evening. I guess when Grange opens, I will be doing doubles again. So seven days? Um, pretty much. Yeah. I think on Saturdays I've been teaching for the last few years. Um, I won't be anymore because we're, we're opening Grange, so I won't be teaching at Carson's anymore. Um, but I would always train as part of that as well. So yeah, seven days with Sunday being like, a just a drilling day. I, I haven't sort of typically sparred on a Sunday. But yeah, sort of sparring six days a week and, and drilling one day a week. Um, and I haven't done enough supplementary things. Um, I used to absolutely love weightlifting, but since I've done jiu-jitsu, I've seen weightlifting as like 
supplementary in the sense that I should do a lot more of it. But I mean, if you're if you're rolling six days a week, I mean, that's quite a lot of recovery you need from that. Yeah, I mean, I've I've always done yoga, so like I'll do a little little bit of yoga every day. Not as much as I used to do when I was teaching yoga, but um, just to keep in like keep in with it and I think I'm I'm naturally very flexible anyway and I just kind of stay on top of that with with a little bit of yoga um I more do the yoga to calm down to be honest um but yeah I I don't do enough uh strength training I I think I think actually yoga um in 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 that sense really because I I did a podcast recently with my friend who's a yoga teacher Mm -hmm. um and he so I've known him since we were young and he was like a wild, wild boy when mm-hmm. we were young. You really trouble. And uh, he moved to Cyprus 15 years ago. So I see him periodically, like maybe every couple of years for a, a day here or half a day there or whatever. But he's so calm now and so speaks so slowly and yeah. considered. And I, and I think that's one of the things with, with yoga is that a, a lot of people um, – they think that yoga is flexibility yeah, and core strength. So much and, more. Yeah, it's, it is. It is much more about being learning to sort of be still and be calm. And you know, when when um, uh, I don't know if you know Chloe, who's Jack Burrell. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I love Chloe. So, yeah, so she used to teach yoga at uh, Mill Hill on a Sunday mm-hmm. morning, and I used to go and do the yoga class, like one of my favourite classes. And after about six months. We were lying down to do the shavasana at the end. Mm-hmm. That's the corpse yeah. pose, right? And she said, okay, you know, we're going to lie down and do um, shavasana, the, the most important position. And I was like, oh. And then I was like, fine, anyway, you know, whatever. I was, I was so relaxed then. Okay, yeah. I was like, fine, I'll, I'll ask her afterwards. I, you know, laid down, kind of half went to sleep. And she said, yeah, you know, I mean, that's that's why we do all the practice so that you can just be completely still and completely relaxed and completely out of your own head and everything yeah. else. So, but I, I, I find that I get that from jujitsu, from, yeah. from sparring. I mean, in a, in, a, in a different way because obviously it's much more kinetic, but it, it always stops me just going over and over and over that same thing that's bugging me that I can't you know it's because you're like I've got where am I going to put my hand where am I going to put yeah. my foot it's flow like, state isn't it you're completely you're you completely in the moment you can't be distracted by other things or you will get hurt um you just you have to be in the moment to do jiu-jitsu the same way that you do in yoga and I think even though obviously you know yoga is a much calmer practice and no one's trying to stop you doing it they are very very similar in a, in a lot of ways and I think like the idea of taking an uncomfortable position and trying to find comfort in it. Like that's how I've always approached yoga is like, right, this is initially uncomfortable. How can I do this enough until I find comfort in it? And I find that with jujitsu as well. It's like you want to turn positions of discomfort into positions where you can attack someone from them be yeah. like right i'm i'm dangerous from anywhere and i find them very similar in that kind of yeah that's a, that's an interesting way to to look at it and what about um recovery do, do you sort of do anything specific or you just no i sleep a lot <laughs> i'm good at sleeping um keep a clean diet um, Akil kind of forces me to have a clean diet. Cause what, what would your diet normally look like? Um, we we mostly eat curry. Um, so yeah, I uh, at work I eat a lot of fruit. Um, 
I've, I have food at work, but I keep it quite minimal. I don't eat that much at work. And then in the evenings, we, we just sort of batch cut curries every week. And we just, yeah. So you'd those. have a big evening meal after training? I don't training? have that big a meal anyway. Yeah, it's always after training. I might have like some watermelon or something before training. Um, but yeah, we just sort of batch cook, keep everything very clean, um, super low sugar, low, well, not, not low, low salt, but we don't overdo the salt. Um, yeah, I just don't overcomplicate it really. I'm sure I could like look more into nutrition, but, yeah, but, that but I find what I'm doing is working for me. So yeah, I think as well, you know, you 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 have to have something which is sustainable as mm-hmm. well, right? It's like it's fair enough saying, right, I'm going to start eating seven meals a day and these macros and for three weeks. Yeah, it's going to work. Gonna do that. Yeah, it's not not going <laughs> to happen, right? Yeah, so so you need something that's consistent. And and how does your or does your training change building up to competition or bigger competitions um it would if i had the flexibility to but because i do work full-time as a school teacher i don't really have uh the flexibility to do that and so i just have to train but would you would you change like what what you're doing within the class would you sort of say actually can i pull someone aside and i just want to go over this or you just know i haven't really i've I've just tried to um change my uh, focus in a class like in in rounds so depending what type of competition like if I've got a show coming up that's sub only then I'll play with the sub only mentality and train it and if I've got an IBJJF competition coming up then I'll I'll treat rounds I'll, I'll sort of choose the rounds probably the ones closest to my um, division so whether that's a 62 kilo white belt a uh, blue belt man or um, or a smaller girl um, then in those rounds I'll be like right treat this as a comp round but you can't treat every round as a comp round. So I'll kind of select those. So it's more my sort of mentality in sparring. Um, and then with with drilling, like I drill with Akil a lot, um, especially on the weekends. And so we'll sort of cater it to, right, what do I really want to do in this competition? And like focus our drills on that and, and you know, really up the intensity with those drills as well. And so what 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 kind of drilling stuff would do? Would you drill sort of like a whole pattern say from engaging all the way through to yeah, where, where that, I that's sit. something I really like to do and in the women's classes that I've been teaching that's um I very often do that I'll do it as the warm-up I'll say right um do your a game starting from a guard pass so you'll do a guard pass into some sort of transition to a to a submission and then you do it from the guard pull so you're like pull sweep and they can kind of choose what they do and so sometimes we'll do that and I actually don't know what I'm going to do I'm just going to feel out um either his reactions or what what do I feel like is my A game at the moment? So I kind of just let it happen and then just drill that over and over. Um, I found I found that's been actually really beneficial. It's where I've become quite creative with jiu-jitsu as well, mm. um, drilling like that. But yeah. then other times we'll just like to get to get warm. We'll like do ten minutes of like passing footwork, um, right. just to get really really fast with the passing. Yeah, because I, I mean I I only rolled with you once at, at Ibis, but yeah, mm. it was very like where are, where are you going? Yeah, it's like all over the place. <laughs> but I think as well as uh, being a smaller person, and I think a lot of the time in sparring, if I'm not sparring as like a comp round, so if it's someone who is bigger than me or stronger than me, I think this is this is just training. Then I'll just go with it, and I'll just keep moving and do like wild transitions. And sometimes it'll be something I've never done before as well. So I, I do like to be creative with jujitsu. And do you do you um, would you sit down after class and and kind of 
chew over in your head or write notes or whatever about stuff that's happened or n- I you don't, don't really tend need to? to? Or if I write notes, I'll never see them again because I've got like 36 notebooks and they're all, there's no consistency with that. Um, but yeah, I do, we do like to talk about what we've done a lot. Um, it's something we do a lot at Carson's actually. Um, you'll just sit on the mats afterwards. Someone might say, oh, can I grab you? Can I look at this? Um, and obviously I'm really lucky because I've got Akil to do that with as well. Um, but yeah, or, and if he's not in training, I'll probably message him afterwards and say, oh, this happened in this round. I managed to do this, but I'm not sure how. And then the next day I'll try it on him and try and work out what my reaction was, what that mm-hmm. person's reaction was. So yeah, I do like to... I do like to reflect on on rounds that I've had and like certain exchanges within them. And can you talk a little bit about, because you compete a lot. Mm -hmm. So did you, have you competed in other things before you started training jiu-jitsu? And why why did you get into jiu-jitsu? Oh, that's a funny story. I'll answer that one first. So I started jiu-jitsu completely by accident. Um, I was teaching yoga at a sort of commercial gym, one-to-one gym, and um, there was an MMA class there. I was not interested at all. I'd never been interested in combat sports, and especially not MMA. I just thought it was violent. Um, But the MMA instructor started coming to my yoga class, and he was really nice. And I thought, oh, do you know what? He's supporting my class. I'll go and support his because he's doing women's only MMA. And I thought, it's just a fitness class. And And it was. It wasn't, you know, a competitive MMA class or anything. Um, and I enjoyed like doing a bit of pad work, a bit of bag work. Um, and I really liked the people there. And then I went to, I went to India for a month, came back and was like, oh, let me go to MMA. I've missed all the girls. And I was so jet lagged. I got the wrong day and I turned up at the gym and it was a jujitsu class and I was just too polite to leave. Um, and Ash Williams was, was teaching it. And uh, I was just like, oh, well, there's a little bit like what we do in MMA. It's that grappling stuff we do at the end. So I just kind of joined in. And then he was like, oh, come back on Thursday. I was like, okay, because I just do what I'm told. And in my head, I was like, I, I never chose to take up this sport. And then I went on Thursday and Chris Reese was actually doing a seminar there. And I absolutely love Chris Reese. Um, and then the following week, I just went back. I was like, well, it's all the same people who do MMA and this is all right. And that week, Ash said, everyone in this room needs to sign up for the Hereford Open. So I did. And he was like, oh, I didn't mean you. You literally just started a week ago. But yeah, I didn't really ever decide to start. And even when I was going to those classes and when I entered the Hereford Open, I was still just kind of doing it because it was just a class that was on at my gym and it was something to do in the evening. But I don't remember ever making the decision to sort of commit to this sport at all. It's probably the it's probably an easy way to start is is yeah, accidentally so rather think, than having a preconception for of, sure because I think especially I've you know I've been doing like inductions at Carlson Gracie for the last few years for for women and so many of them come in they're like oh I've been looking at this for the last two years and I haven't had the guts to actually do it and it's like such a big step to to go into the dojo but for me I never had that because that dojo was where I taught my yoga classes it was like where I, I used to work in that gym. So I was like, oh, I cleaned that yeah. dojo every day. So I never saw it as like a yeah. a big step to go in there. I just kind of accidentally went in one day and fell into the sport. So, And did you compete at that Hereford Open? I did, yeah. After how many classes? Uh, it was after two and a half months, I think. And how, how did it go? Um, I did not win any fights that day. Uh, I many, had a many... lot of fun. I really, I had, I think I had three, two or three fights that day. Um and I think we were all, it was all of our first competition. I think Charlie Simpkin was in the division and everyone else was like relatively new to jiu-jitsu. And it was, it was, we were all brand new to competition. So no one knew what, what, how to score points or anything. We were all just a bit clueless. And I remember 
in my first fight, we both stopped when the timer went on someone else's mat and we just both stopped and stood up and the ref was like, keep going. And we were like, ah. Um, so that, yeah, that was a bit, bit wild. But then like straight away, I signed up for the Welsh Nogi as soon as I got home and then I won that. Um, so do you, after that first comp, you knew I like competing. Yeah. I want to do this. And I think I was annoyed that I hadn't won as well. Um, and I know you asked earlier that I didn't answer. Um, yeah, I've always competed whatever I've done I've competed in because I, I I used to play football so you know you train in the week you I was gonna say fight play on the weekend um and so it's really sort of natural I wouldn't want to kind of train something where you don't get to compete um I'd, I'd feel quite strange not being able to test myself yeah um, yeah I mean with, it's... even with dancing when I was younger I was always competed in that as well okay um, so so you've really have you always been sort of physically yeah, I've always been Active. sporty. I'm, I've never been naturally good at sport, I have to say. It's, there's no kind of sport that I'm, like, I feel like I'm built for or anything. I'm not, like, naturally athletic or anything. But I think I've always just enjoyed being active I've always enjoyed moving so like I was a mediocre gymnast and a mediocre dancer but I love doing them so that's what I did like, as a child and a teenager um then yeah, I, mean, I love football I was terrible at football it's literally the worst footballer ever like the only awards I won in football were like most improved player which is like the oh she tried he was really bad and then just bad yeah I was, I was terrible um but I, I've just always enjoyed doing sport. So what I love about jiu-jitsu is that there is the opportunity to compete in your weight class, at your rank, at your age. All right, I can't always get a match in my actual division. But, you know, a major, there's a chance that I can. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's nice being able to to, to really see how you measure against your mm -hmm. peers. Yeah. Against someone that is actually your size, age experience level yeah and I think yeah. it makes training more fun as well that I don't treat training as my competition so I don't sort of go to train and think oh if this person gets the better of me then I'm going to sulk about it all night because it is just training yeah and so that's where that's where you learn that's where you tap that's where you make your mistakes so that you then don't make them a competition but even if you do make them a competition you learn from that as well like, yeah. yeah yeah I mean it's the whole thing is just a is just a an experience right mm -hmm. it's just a, a path that you're on um go, going through um and in terms of like um traveling for for comp so euros is in paris mm -hmm. now and used to be in portugal yeah and it was in rome last year and have you have you thought about doing the world championships I, i've done world masters a couple of times or three times Where, where's world masters that's in vegas oh that is in vegas yeah well the world masters and the non no the normal worlds is in california i believe right yeah but both both us and how was that with, with really the time like, difference and i had so much fun you, you don't get jet lag going that way or if you do it's not it's not bad but um i went with the same group of girls three years in a row um, and we went like five or six days before so that we were completely acclimatized. Um, and it's such a great tournament. I think because it's Masters as well, everyone's a little bit more chilled out. And I remember the first time I went there looking around and it because, you know, I used I'm, I'm not a good loser. No, I don't think anyone's a good loser. I lose a lot <laughs> and I'm not good at it. Um, but I used to be like, you know, every time I lost, I'd be like, I'm a fake blue belt or like, I don't belong in this sport. I want to quit. And then I immediately sign up for another competition. But I remember going to World Masters and they start with the black belts there, which I think every tournament should do. So the black belts can then coach their students without right. worrying. Yeah. 
Um, and I just remember looking around and it's such a chilled atmosphere there because everyone's older, everyone's been doing this for so long. It's not adult worlds, so no one's taking it, they're taking it seriously, but not like, you don't get that crazy intensity that you get at an adult competition. And I just remember looking around and there was, I think, 21 or 22 mats. And I thought, half the people on the mats right now are losing. And 90% of people in, or probably more than 90% of people in this room are going to lose a fight today. And I was like, and that doesn't make them any less of a black belt. And I just remember that realization for me. I was like, oh, no one's judging you when you compete. You're just a little blue belt. Like, just have fun. And I had so much fun at that tournament. And so do you say so you, you, you've done that three times? Yeah. When so was, I've, I've never the made the podium recent? at that one. It's the only only major I've done that I haven't made the podium at. But I've, I've won quite a few fights there. I've got quite a few submissions. They're just massive divisions. So even at, so what, what? how old are you? What, what I'm 35. So, so Masters 2. Masters 2. And so did you fight Masters 1? That was Masters 1, yeah, yeah. for those those three. Yes, yeah, so I suppose as you get, you know, Masters 3, Masters 4, the, even there the divisions will get smaller. Yeah. Yeah. And also as you go up up the belts as well, like the blue belt, the blue belt divisions it's are always absolutely the deepest, huge. Right? You know, you've got like 30 to 40 people in the women's divisions, which normally you wouldn't get, like even at the Euros, like you don't get big divisions like that. Um, but then at sort of brown and black belt, there'll be divisions of five or six. Yeah, I think when I maybe when I went, I went a couple of times to the Euros, but I think this maybe the second time I went, the blue belt adult lightweight or whatever, it was like 90 eight people or something oh like remember you know you when you're looking through on the whatever I swear it's blue belt is like the most intense like, the most intense competition as well the blue belts are so pumped yeah. like I'm, I'm kind of past that now yeah 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 it's nice to it's nice to get through that and come out the other side yeah but you got you you do have to kind of go through that fire right because you have to be on that mm. blue belt for Couple, yeah. But how, were you like two, three years? I was three and a half years at Blue Belt. Yeah. So, you know, you've got to sort of stay in that real shark tank because you're, yeah. you're sort of at that level where the good white belts will still get you. Yeah. And that's really bad. Like, well, they don't yeah. even have a, like a proper belt and I'm still getting tapped. Yeah. And, that's, and then that's the purple the belts are either... too, the, you know, their game is too advanced. Yeah. So, yeah, blue's, blue's tough. Yeah. Blue's a, blue's a tough belt. So, so how have you found on that note that your that your jujitsu or that your training or that your mindset has changed through going through the belts do do you mm. are you conscious of things that are different or not really it's just been yeah, a blur I guess in a lot of ways you just constantly evolving and adapting aren't you and like I said before I think when I was a white belt I sort of had this idea that I had to prove something as a woman like oh no guys can go as hard as they want on me and I don't care I can take it and now I'm just like no thank you I don't want I don't want any part in this so I think that's where maybe you, you know the continuum from unconscious incompetence all the way through to conscious com or unconscious competence is yeah. like that that yeah. little continuum and I think I just became more consciously incompetent as I went on and I realized where I'm not going to be able to compete with certain people and and I'm okay with that mm. and sort of let that, that that ego go a little bit I don't think I even realized how much of an ego I had as a white belt um but yeah just being able to let that go I think has been the the biggest change and thinking right if some massive guy hurts me in training it's just not worth it like just tap or just don't roll with him in the first place it doesn't mean that I'm any less of a brown belt um for a 95 kilo white belt to, to yeah. get the better of me things like that yeah I think I think there is there is um there is certainly that that kind of 
um, I don't know if pressure is the right word, expectation, let's say that, you know, if you walk into a gym and there's a purple belt, they're going to be able to deal with all the blue belts and mm. white belts. Or if there's a brown belt, likewise, you know, anyone yeah. that's at a lower grade is going to give them no, no, no trouble. And, and it is um, unrealistic, you know, once you've been training for a bit of time, you do realize like that there's certain people that they're just going to smash you. Yeah. It doesn't matter how good you get. Yeah. They're getting better as well and they're, they're just going to smash you. And yeah, you do, you have to, you have to kind of accept that and just, just, you know, embrace that as part of the. Yeah. And I think one of the hard things for a lot of people is when someone starts after them and overtakes them. And I think I learned really early on that some people are just exceptional um, and that it doesn't, doesn't make you any worse for them to progress fast. So I was really lucky because when I started, Fionn Davis was one of my teammates. She later became one of my coaches. And so I always had, you know, one of my very few female teammates was, you know, someone who then became the best in the world. And so I always knew, I'm look at the rate she's progressing at. I'll never progress at that rate. You know, she only started maybe six months before I did. And she's just on a completely different level from day one. And then um, at Carson's, I've trained with Marina. And, you know, she was a white belt when I was a blue belt. And she overtook me so fast. She's just like an incredible athlete. And I don't see that as like, oh, she's progressed. She overtook me. Oh, no, I must be really bad. I'm just like, wow, some people are just amazing. And that's really cool. And as a coach as well, I think it's really nice to see when your students progress quickly. And like some of my white belts couldn't like... I don't want to say give me a hard time, but they're they making things harder for me. And like, that's so exciting for me. I'm like, man, they're becoming good training partners. It's yeah. Really, like, it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I always, I always try to, to just compare myself to other potential versions of myself. Mm. Like I think, you know, if I didn't, if I wasn't training or if I wasn't doing this, that's or a nice I was eating really it. badly, you know, it's like, well, I would be in a worse condition that I'm in. So I'm, I'm quite happy with, you know, with what I'm doing, with where, where, where I'm going. Yeah. So so um, talk a little bit then about setting up, deciding to set up a, a club, because it's quite a big step, maybe. And I think also it's, you're, you're, you're sort of taking on, obviously there's three of you guys mm-hmm. doing it, but you're, you're sort of taking on then a little bit of responsibility of, right, I'm going to, you know, we're going to sort of carry the torch for jujitsu forward and have yeah. our own students is it something you've been thinking about doing for a while yeah i think i think it's very much the natural progression for us as well because um like both the boys are double black belts they're both like very high level judo um both black belts and jujitsu um and akil um doesn't have a sort of career outside of jujitsu he wanted to be a high level competitor but he's just had so many injuries. They thought, right, I need another focus because this might not happen. Like being realistic, it might not happen for him, his his run as a competitor, just because he's been so unfortunate with injuries. Um, and he and I have both been coaching for, for a lot for years now. Um, and so it just seemed kind of natural that we would create our own project because, you know, we, we're really grateful to Carlson Gracie London for giving us the opportunity and the platform to coach. But at the same time, we want to do things our way. Um, with our kind of values and our approach to do to jujitsu and you know even down to things like the the marketing and the websites and and all those things like that's that's an exciting little project for us 
Um, but yeah, I think we've both kind of been surprised how much we've enjoyed seeing other people progress. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a teacher. That's my, that's my day job. So it's kind of natural for me to do that, but I've been taken a bit aback by how much I've enjoyed going to a tournament as a coach and taking my students and like taking joy in their joy when they, when they win or like helping them to fix things when they've lost. Um, yeah, it's been, it's something I didn't really expect to enjoy that much in jujitsu, but it's really, really taken me by surprise how much I've been enjoying that. So yeah, I think with, um, with Akil's kind of position and then the fact that his brother and I are both, you know, at that stage in jujitsu where we want to do more coaching and we want to kind of have our own approach to it as well. It was just natural that we would eventually, um, set up a club. And that's, you said that's going to be four days a week initially. Initially, yeah. E evening times. Yeah, it? so yeah. yeah, Tuesday to Friday evenings, a uh, combination of gi and nogi. Um, the boys are really nogi focused at the moment, but obviously they've got so much experience in gi as well. I'm a little bit more gi focused, but I do kind of bounce between the two. Um, but yeah, long term, we would want our own premises. We'd want a full-time premises, but the amount of money we would have to sink in that if we just did it from the off without any guarantee of membership would be a massive risk. And so we thought, right, let's start off smaller. And people always prefer something to get bigger than to get smaller. So yeah. we'll yeah, build up our membership and then expand. It's, once it's got quite that. a big financial commitment to mm -hmm. if you if you get your own place with yeah. mats and taking a lease and all of that. Yeah, it's, I imagine, quite uh, daunting to do. So do have the place that you're going to um, set up initially, have they already got mats there? No, we've we've uh, bought mats. Got like roll-up mats or something. We, well, we have is both. There a, is there a mat story? <laughs> there's a mat story. So um, there's a, a little bit of storage space at, at the school, and the boys said, oh, we'll get roll-up mats. And I said, do you know how big roll-up mats are, how much space they take? And I showed them. I was like, they are this big. It's hard for me to pick them up. My arms are too short. Um, so they went to check out this place and they went, no, no, and the storage space is huge. There's loads of space. So we bought the rollout mats and then they arrived and they were, as I had described with my, with my arms and they were like, yeah, they're not going to fit. Um, oh, no. and to return them was going to cost us like 900 quid. They're expensive as well. Yeah. Yeah. So we now have judo mats that we can stack and they do actually fit, um, in our own little storage solution um so but what, we've kept the rollout mats right, where, ready where ready the, for our they, the in the boys mats? garage and right. they in their parents house <laughs> so no car in the garage anymore well they didn't keep a car in there anyway they just, right. they actually just kept their own mats in there to train on they right. just had a little training space in there so um but i'm like this their garage now symbolizes our long-term plans because we eventually want double double the size so we can have the roll-out mats and the judo mats when we have our own premises. <laughs> how, how big is the, the hall that you've got? How much space? Oh, it's massive. Got? I don't know the actual size of the hall, but we're going to, I think it's, I think it's 50 square meters of mats we have. Um, and that the hall is absolutely huge. So it's a really nice facility actually. So you, you could just put more matting down in yeah. there as it, as it, um, yeah, if we grow, grows, yeah. yeah. And so, so what are you guys doing in terms of sort of marketing and and attracting new members and 
publicizing the, the club so once once we get started once we have the um the opening day obviously we've done like flyers and things like that and um like spoke to people at their local college and and that sort of thing um and we've also got a lot of people who work in the area who are kind of spreading the word amongst colleagues um but we've got uh, richard presley from attack the back come into our opening to do some um do some content for us and he's given us some good pointers on sort of social media presence and the best way to approach that. But that's something we're really excited about doing as well. Um, like, none of us are particularly big on social media personally. Um, but, like, I used to do the social media for Carlson Gracie London, and I really enjoyed doing that um, and sort of having, like, set things that I had to do every week and making sure that um, members were very much included. So one of, one of the big things we're going to do from day one is make sure we've got lots of professional quality photographs of our members because having members post things gets like really spreads your reach more so than a paid ad for example um so you so will you uh, you'll just have like a, a dslr and be taking snaps during classes yeah i mean I've, I've done a lot of jiu-jitsu photography over the years so um i can i can do a bit of that but we also have um like I don't know how to describe him. A media guy. I'm gonna call him a media guy. We've got Richard for the for the first month, but then yeah, our our friend has like a, a videography business that he's setting up. And so he's gonna be doing a bit for us as well. Um and he's a photographer too. So yeah. We're, so will you be putting little video sort of yeah. uh, tutorial? Yeah, sort of many things, many reels of escapes and yeah, flashy yeah. things, fundamentals, like little just little bits. It's good fun, right? It's yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to doing that part of it. I project. think um, I really like to see what um, Ross Nichols has been doing at London Grapple, where he's got his little sort of second career as an actor or a face actor going on. Like I really love all that like funny stuff that they do there. But I think that's organic as well. I don't think that's something you can force. Mm. Yeah, I guess you just have to sort of see where it goes and where you mm -hmm. get engagement, and then just yeah. just kind and of. And I think really involving our members in it as well will be will be a big part. Cause I think you know the members make the club, and so you know at the moment we don't know exactly what that's going to look like, and I think it'll be really nice to see how that evolves. Have um, you got? Can people sign up already? Yeah, we've got a few. Yet? Yeah, so you've you already um, got a bit of a uh, membership yeah. building. So we got got a couple of. Uh, full members and what a lot of people from Carsons are going to do because they're not going to leave Carsons and we we wouldn't want them to you know we are we are still um you know Carsons lineage and everything um but what a lot of people are doing is buying class packs so we're doing it you, know, you buy five five days um and you can use those within a month or you buy 10 days and you can use those within three months so it's not a commitment um, as a membership but it means people can drop in and still train with us if they were training in our classes at Carson's yeah I think that's a good idea because I, I mean I, I think from from sort of speaking to other people who who run their own clubs on the one hand you know you need the regular members mm -hmm. because you need to budget for this is how much it's costing us for yeah. the bills and the, the lease or whatever um but then it does make it sometimes a little bit prohibitive for people that can't quite commit to come in that yep. much, but do want to come once a week or exactly. twice a month here and there. And, and yeah. I think that's what we're seeing with um, Submission Grappling Club, um, Owen O'Flanagan and Sylvia's gym. Oh, is yeah. that a lot of people, because they're, they're so high level and their teaching is just off the charts. So a lot of people are doing droppings there. Drop droppings? Drop-ins. <laughs> uh, doing drop-ins there. Um just whether it's once a week or once a month just to just to go and train with them yeah and i think that's i might be wrong but it looks to me like a lot of their 
um, income is coming from that because people want to go and train with those guys, but it's not their club or it's difficult to get to for whatever reason. Um, and so I think it is, it's something that seems to be happening a lot more in London. And I think the cross training that we're seeing in London at the moment is really exciting. I think it's really, really positive to see the really high level guys go into Owen's gym, go into London Grapple, Grapple Collective, um, and, you know, getting rounds in with one another, but also doing their own projects at yeah. their own gyms. Yeah, it does. It, I mean, I'm not, I'm not really super deep into the, the jujitsu scene yeah. in, the, in that way, but it does seem like that, that kind of crossover is happening more and more, which, you know, really I think can only be a good thing mm-hmm. for building a, a really kind of um, powerful network of, of people. And because I think for the top British athletes as well, it's really important that they're training together. You know, it always happens in judo. Why wouldn't it happen in jiu-jitsu? Um, and I think as well in London, what we're seeing with these newer gyms, like the ones I've just mentioned, is pulling away from the sort of big affiliations. So whether that be like Gracie Baja, Carlson Gracie, um, even even RGA, I suppose, Um that you've got the more independent gyms and there's not that, oh, Creonte kind of attitude. Yeah. And it is, it's really nice to see. And like, I love to, when I'm um, on holiday from work, I love to like drop into those gyms and, and catch up with people and get some rounds in. Yeah. 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 Very nice. Um, and what, what, what else do you do outside of jujitsu or are you jujitsu con, con, uh, consumed in every sort of, work and train i mean at, at the moment you know jiu-jitsu is my priority and it does take up most of my time but i'm i would say i'm like a jack of all trades master of a very small handful you so don't still play football i i do that's one thing i do not do and like sometimes at carson's they play football as a warm-up and i am i have no part in it i'm like i quit football for a reason and i'm not playing it with a bunch of 90 kilo men in an enclosed space no way um but no, I like I'm I'm a musician, so I play the violin and the piano. Um, oh. And like, and again, that's something that sort of a bit of a flow state. We can just yeah. do that without. So again, I do that more for relaxation rather than performance or anything. Like when I was younger, I I was you know competitive in in music, but I kind of burned out I'm with sensing that. Sensing a theme. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually didn't like that. I didn't like that music would be competitive. I I I just like doing it for the for the relaxation element. So like now that's what I do it for. Um, and so you still play both piano and yeah. violin? Yeah. Oh, very nice. We went and saw recently, um, I think it was called the Arla Quartet. Um, gosh, and my wife booked us a little surprise concert for one of the things we did for my 50th uh, birthday in, oh, it was somewhere in, in London, I forget the hall. But it was just, I think, two two violins of viola mm-hmm. and a cello yeah and they did the Hans Zimmer music just oh, like nice. acoustically that was amazing I mean I've, I've got a friend a uh, school friend who I'm, I'm still in touch with who's a really really good violinist mm-hmm. um, but that to me still sounds like violin whereas this thing we listen to I it's hard for me to describe what it sounded yeah. like it was it was incredible it was it was really good so do you do you, you just sort of sit and at home and play or do you, yeah. you don't meet up with other people and no but i actually really miss that um so I, I sing as well and i miss kind of making music in a group but because jiu-jitsu is my priority there's just there's just not enough time in the day 
Um, but like I do a bit of music as part of my job as well because I teach four and five year olds. So like I'm there is a music teacher that comes into school, but I kind of help with those lessons as well. So you just come, I've got my violin with me. Um, he's he's always saying, oh, br bring it in and we'll do a duet and we'll we'll perform at the school concert, things like he, that. What, he, does he play? Yeah, he, I mean, he plays the piano and the cello. So okay. he wants to do like duets and things with me. Um, you haven't done it yet? No, we are going to do one soon though. Um, but like I said, I, don't, I just don't perform that often because it's not, it's not my priority anymore. I just, I just play for myself now. I did, I did play at Daniel Strauss's sister's wedding last year though. Um, just... The violin? Yeah, yeah, yeah I played violin. violin. When they when they walked in? Yeah, just play the did wedding. their music before, just while the guests were congregating and then them walking down the aisle and everything. And then, because it was a, a Jewish wedding, did the... Um, Wasn't a jiu-jitsu Nah, she didn't do jiu-jitsu. Oh. But no, that was fun. What about um, training in terms of um, ways to to improve your speed of, of learning, um, stuff that you've picked up along the way. Um, because I think a thing that, that certainly that I struggled with at the beginning, and I think a lot of people, I mean, pro probably a lot of people find it along the way anyway, is that you, you have like these long sort of periods of time where maybe you feel like you're not getting better, mm -hmm. you're not really getting anywhere, you, you, know, you kind of turn up and train and nothing much is happening. Do you do you sort of have any advice for or strategies for making sure that your training is is effective in terms of improving? Um, yeah, I think I've been really lucky because I've trained at quite a few different gyms um, and seen different styles of coaching as well. So I think a big part of it is your training environment and the way that the instructor formats the class. I think there can be some formats that are you almost have to fight against the format in order to improve, um, but so the the best I've seen was at CF24, um, which is now 24 Jiu-Jitsu with, with Bryn Jenkins. And he just had an incredible way of um, structuring a class. Um, and his, his actual technical instruction is brilliant as well. And so I've kind of picked up good ways of formatting a class um, and, and actually teaching. I can't say I'd do it as well as him, but I've kind of got a lot of really good ideas from him and from other coaches as well. Of course, you know, I've trained, trained with so many different coaches. Um, but as an individual, I think taking ownership of your training is so important. Um, like we watch a lot of instructionals and drill them, but you do have to have the time to do that as well. Um, I don't watch as many as Akio. He's like the, he's really the instructional guy, but we, we very much use like what we've learned from instructionals to inform our training. Um, but with my students, when it comes to that, um, sort of plateau, I always say if you're at a plateau, it means you're about to break through something. Or if you're having really tough rounds, if you're finding your jiu-jitsu is not working, it's probably because you're trying new stuff and it's going to click soon. It's not because you've gone backwards. I remember Dara O'Connell used to say to me, you cannot go backwards in jiu-jitsu. All your training is in the bank. And even if for whatever reason your sparring is not quite working at the moment, it's all still there and something is about to click. So I always kind of remind the girls that um, in, in women's class, if they're saying, oh, I'm really, really struggling at the moment. Oh, I'm just not doing well. I'm like, something's coming. You're like, you're, you're about to, you're about to evolve like a, like a Pokemon. So. <laughs> and so, so what, what is that sort of format in terms of how, how you would like to structure a class? I mean, I think there's a lot of ways you can do it. And, um, 
I I very much have competition in mind um, when I'm when I'm stretching a class that I don't ever want someone to come to my class and have a competition in two weeks and think oh I didn't get enough out of that um, but like the the general structure that we we're going to have at Grange is we've got the warm up is jiu jitsu specific so it's not running around the room or playing football or playing dodgeball or anything like that it is jiu jitsu specific. Um, based usually on wrestling or judo because the, the guys are so high level with that and so we'll do a stand-up kind of warm-up um, then we'll do the specific jiu-jitsu technique whether that's stand-up or on the ground or the transition between the two then there's the pressure testing phase um, which is slightly different to positional sparring it's where you just get certain reactions from one position and you're looking at a very specific goal so it's using the technique you've learned that day um, with resistance which you sort of build on and then positional sparring. So where you're starting from that position until there's a score or a certain position and then free sparring or open sparring, whatever you want to call it. But then we've also got um, lots of other little things that you can add in. So if, for example, someone's going to compete, we'll do no score rounds, which is where it's a shark tank. You're in for, say, six minutes. Every minute a fresh person comes in, they're going absolutely wild to try and score on you. And all you have to do is not get scored on. So it's basically last minute of the fight and you're winning. And so it's getting into that sort of competition mindset rather than kind of mindlessly doing a five minute round or an eight minute round or anything like that. It's like, right, I've got one minute to make the right decisions. And what I find when I do those kind of sessions with, sometimes we'll do that for the whole session with the girls. Um, and what I find is a lot, a lot of questions come up about point scoring and it's like, oh, who would who would win in that minute? And so then I can use my experience as a referee to explain to the girls what decisions they should make. Um, and so it's keeping it quite sort of cerebral as well. It's that it's not just ah, mm. go to war with somebody, but you're actually thinking about what decision I would make depending on the time left and the score in the fight. And um, so when you do those uh, the no score rounds. Mm -hmm. You, you're basically sitting on the mat and the next person just jumps yeah, so you on top could of you. Do it, so you could do it from guard. So I might say, right, I always say, do you want to play top or bottom? And then the second challenge, like, I don't always offer them this, but sometimes I say winning or losing. So you could be losing every minute. So you have to score, but that's right. tiring. Right. Um, it's more fun the other way around just because the person coming in can go absolutely wild if yeah. they're losing in yeah. the scenario. Yeah. But it's that, that, and that's just one example of how you could do it. But the, the idea is having scenario-based training and surprisingly, it takes the ego out of it as well. So you don't just get people playing their A game when they come in. Mm. Say, right, you're going in to help this person. It's their, it's their shark tank. You can do whatever you want. And if you get scored on, it doesn't matter because you're losing anyway. You've got nothing to lose. And so it really turns into a, like a team building exercise. Everyone's always absolutely exhausted by the end. Everyone learns a lot from it. And nobody kind of leaves being like, oh, that person really got the better of me because that's not how it's set up. But that's just one, one example of the sort of um, mm. competition-based stuff that, that I've been doing um, in my classes so far and that we'll continue to do at Grange as well. And so would you, would you prioritise that kind of stuff more running up to a yeah. comp? And, and what do you do personally and what do you sort of advise people to do in terms of rolling off their training before a competition? Do you train like right up to the, um, your last normal day? I or? don't. For the, for the last week before, I always, I always say, right, you're not going to learn anything new, so don't be fussy about technique. And if I go to a class and they're teaching something I've never done before um, with all 
all due respect to the instructor, I'm probably not going to use up all my my brain power trying to get that technique right. I'm not going to get frustrated if I if I don't quite get it in that session. Um, and then when it comes to sparring, um, I'll sort of taper off and by like if it's three or four days before, I'll only do half the rounds, something right. like that. But if it's you know five six days before, I'll still do all the rounds and I'll still go hard. And so, how many how many you? Six days a week, more or less. How many mm. rounds are you are you sparring on a, a, oh, a normal class? Probably be like half an hour of sparring a day, I'd say. I think at Carson's, all the instructors do sort of different length rounds, so it's hard to see how many rounds there'd be. But yeah, about half an hour of sparring a day minimum. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a good uh, quite a good schedule. So something that you mentioned just just now was uh, refereeing. Mm-hmm. Um, which you do quite a bit. I don't anymore. I really don't like it. I oh. I'm, I like being able to do it, and I I do it a lot in training, and I encourage other people to do it. So um, if someone is injured, or like at the moment, some of the girls I teach are fasting, um, so they don't do all the rounds. So I say, right, if you're not sparring, you're refereeing. So you pick a round and you go and referee it. Um, yeah. So I mean, one of the things I, that that was kind of what I was going to ask was whether you felt that because. You know the 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 rules and the scoring. Um, obviously, it's different under different rule sets, yeah. but but certainly for IBJJF can be sometimes a little bit confusing as to what is a sweep or is not or is an advantage yeah. or they didn't get it or whatever. So did did you find that the refereeing kind of helped your competition understanding in terms of your your fighting? Yeah, and that's that's why I did it. Um, I feel like competing is the main thing that kind of gets you in tune with 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 scoring and also like just sitting on the table doing the doing the score and seeing what an experienced referee is doing that really I think will consolidate the idea of scoring um but yeah I think it's a combination of refereeing and competing that for me is I'm I'm just a nerd anyway like I love I love the nuances of the rules and and like sometimes something will happen in a round and I think I don't know. I don't know how I'd score that. And I'll like replicate it and then send it to an experienced referee and be like, how would you score this? Um, Cause I, I think even the best referees are going to make mistakes cause it is, mm. it can, can be really, really fiddly the, the scoring system. But I, I think yeah. everybody should know how to referee if they're, if they're a competitor. Cause I think you should never have any doubt about what the score is or what the score should be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I did, cause I, cause I, um, I didn't really want to compete. I just, mm. I just wanted to 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 start training because I'd done I'd done a lot of kung fu when I was younger, yeah. and then I stopped because I started working. I was too tired. Didn't have time to train. Then I had various injuries and wasn't really. It was just kind of played a bit of five side. Didn't really like that. And was doing this and that. And then um, once I once I got back to Ibby's and and to Mill Hill. I, I I didn't plan to compete at all. I just, you know, I was like, I need something that I can just sort of get stuck into. And um, then I, I, I just decided to, to go to the English Open mm-hmm. because um, at the time I was, I was having like loads of kind of health anxiety, just general stress of life, whatever. And um, was having like these, all these weird like, muscle spasms mm. and thinking oh, I think I'm going to have a heart attack and went to the doctor you know they're like oh Jesus this guy's back again but I thought right I'm going to just go and compete like 
like fight or die. If you're yeah. going to have a heart attack, go and have it in, at the con. That, that is the, the slogan at the English Open as well, isn't it? Cause it's, is that what it is? Because it's run by Fasha Ruins, yeah, fight well, or die. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah <laughs> so that was literally my... So I, I ended at the last minute and um, I just remember like getting there and thinking like, I don't really know like what the rules are. Yeah. Because Mill Hill, you know, was like a big club, a busy mm-hmm. mat, you know, so it, it wasn't, unless you sort of actively went and asked someone, look, can you run me through all of this and that? So I, I didn't really have a have a clue what was going on. And even when I went to the Euros, because I, I did that one and then I was like, oh, this is all right. I'll do, because that's November, something like that. And then I thought, oh, I'll do the Euros in January. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, remember, I remember going to the Euros and uh, again with, with Gosha, with my wife, and she said, like, oh, look, there's a green score, a red score, and a yellow score. What are they for? I was like, I don't know. I was like, <laughs> I better ask Nick like, what they're for. And he's like, yeah, this is like fouls, this is points, this is advantages yeah. or whatever. And um, lucky because I won on a foul against me. Yeah. But if I hadn't have asked him, I would have thought, shit, I'm losing. Yeah. This guy's got two red points. Take a risk points. you didn't need to. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's definitely good advice for for uh, people who are kind of lazy like me and it, learn it, the rules you know it really helped me at the euros actually because like my for some reason my last few fights refs have made mistakes and then called the points back so at the well at the english open the ref made a mistake did not call the points back he gave a sweep to my opponent when there was no sweep um, and i ended up losing on an advantage i think it was and i was livid because it should have been my first win at brown belt because i didn't want to fight yet at brown belt at that point um, and I was so angry. I was like, I'm never going to let that happen again. Um, but I mean, that was, that wasn't on me. That was on the ref. But then at the Euros, um, we double guard pulled and I came up for the advantage. So I'm winning by one advantage, but I think you can never, never rely on that. And I had Danaha's words in my head of, you know, for every, for every 99 fights or for every fight that's, um, won by being overly conservative, um, 19, uh, 99 more are lost by being overly overly timid. That was the word he used. So I was like, you've got to go all out. I was like, just go for it. So anyway, I we double guard pull. I was winning by an advantage. Then there was a bit of a scramble where she went for a submission. I ended up on top. He didn't give her the advantage, which I thought was wrong. And he gave me two points. And I saw the points on the board. And you can see me in the video. I'm like scooching around to look at the points on the board. And you just see my face. I'm like, no, I don't have two points. The ref's messed up. So I thought I can sit here for the next three minutes and win because I felt like she was never going to sweep me from the position. Um, but I was like, he's going to call those points back and he might give her an advantage and then she's going to win by decision. And I had to do all of that in my head. And then I just went all out and I ended up getting the armbar. Um, but I think if I weren't so experienced as a mm. competitor and knowing the points as a referee as well, I probably would have thought, play it safe, win by two points in advantage. Whereas actually the ref did then call the points back as I went for the armbar. Um, and her coach was going absolutely mental about it because the ref had gotten it wrong, but I thought, well, I've tapped it, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. But that sort of thing, knowing that, you see so many fights where it gets to the end and the ref then calls the points back and says, no, no, no. So you can't always rely on the scoreboard even. You have to, you have to know the points and know that maybe the person on the table has messed up or maybe the referee has messed up and is about to change it. Yeah. So those little things, it can, it can be, those can be the margins that, that either win you a, a major or not. Yeah. And so do you, do you watch a lot of uh, video of other people? I do. Competing? I'm a nerd. Um, I, en- I enjoy watching jujitsu. Um, so something that I really like to do actually is if I, 
sometimes it's someone I fought, so, or and sometimes it's just someone I happen to have seen and I think, oh, I really like the way they're fighting. I'll then just watch as much footage of that person as I can. And I won't analyse it, but I'll just watch their movement and then I'll try and uh, mimic it, inspiring. Um, so I've been watching a lot of um, Adam Fazinski recently and Ross Nichols um, for just uh, Butterfly Guard because I'm enjoying Butterfly Guard and I'm trying to imitate their movement as opposed to the specific techniques because I can get a little bit too bogged down in that. Yeah, yeah. Mike's, Mike likes uh, Adam Wazinski yeah. butterfly stuff. He's teaching that quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. And um, one thing that maybe we, we, we sort of glossed over a little bit, but what about injuries? Have you had any... I mean, who hasn't? But yeah, I've, I've had... Anything, um, anything serious and what did I you do about it? I mostly had chronic injuries or I haven't had many acute injuries, just like... You know, dislocated toes and stuff as the as the acute ones um but so i've have like terrible bursitis in my knees that just will not go away so there'll be sometimes i literally can't kneel on the mat and so that's when you see me either pulling guard or like really working my speed passing um and like getting stuck in someone's clothes guard when i've got a bursitis flare-up is absolutely disgusting um and then i have like um my trap seize up a lot and it affects my my neck movement and when that happens, my hips get like, I get like a pinched nerve in my hip and things like that. So yeah, sort of typical brown belt injuries, really. Um, had like a, a cyst in my wrist that comes and goes. So sometimes I can't use my right hand. Um, but I think despite that, I've been lucky that I haven't had any really horrific injuries or any, there's I had one LCL, I don't think it was a tear, it was like I popped my LCL, so mm. I went like a month that I couldn't train, mm. but I think I've been really lucky in that sense. Um, like Akil's had much, much worse injuries than I have, um, probably because he grew up doing judo. Um, but yeah, when he gets injured, he's out for ages. So mm. I, I do feel very, very lucky that, especially as a light featherweight, that I've kind of gotten to nine years in the sport um, without anything too, too severe in one go. And do you, do you ever do you see a therapist like a physio, osteopath, anyone like that? Um, I I have an osteopath who I go to occasionally, and I was going to a chiropractor very regularly. Um, now I'll just go if I feel like Something I need a bit happens. of a tune up. I should. I mean, I know we should all have more like massage and things, but again, it's just it's fitting it in, isn't it? And hmm. I know I'm not good at prioritizing things like that. And I feel like until until I feel awful, I won't do anything about it, which is not the right approach. Yeah, but I mean, I think if 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 what you're doing is working, yeah, you know, there's there's a lot to be said for for um, you know, kind of just taking that feedback from your weekly routine and mm -hmm. saying, well, it's, it's working well for me. Yeah, don't necessarily need to to change anything up. I think it's when you know things are not going so well, then you need to kind of look at, all right, what can I do differently yeah. or better? Or and I think whatever. when I do get these like little flare ups with my hips and things, I know that it's just down to not doing enough enough strength training. So that's something that I can fix myself relatively easily, mm. and it's just it's just making that more of a priority. And and um, would you, if you if it's sort of strength training type of thing, would you be looking to go to a commercial gym, or you would just um, have some rubber bands or some they, kettlebells got, or whatever? Um, training at Carlson's, we've got um, a weights gym there, and okay. I think that's probably why I don't do it enough because I'm like, oh, I'll just do it when I go training. I'll just go early. Or I'll stay late, and then I don't do it. Yeah. Um. All the all the gyms too busy and things. So I think I do just need to join a commercial gym and make it part of my schedule. Mm. And I think when we set up Grange now, that's what that's what I will be doing. There's a I'm joining a gym in Acton, so 
I'll just have like two days a week when I have to go and do that. Mm. Um, and so I, you, but I do like it when I go. Like, I really enjoy lifting weights. Yeah, it's just it's just the the timing. Like yeah. if I don't if I don't schedule it in, then I'll all I do at Carlson's normally is I'll just go in and I'll do ten pull ups and then I'll leave. I'm like, well, I've done my pull ups for the That's day. That's not bad. Before competition, I'm better. I'm like like six weeks before competition, I'll be really sort of as, as in like a major competition. I'll be really disciplined with it, but generally I'm not disciplined. So, so you can can you do proper pull ups? Yeah, that's very impressive. Thanks. And press ups as well. Yeah, very easy if you can do pull ups. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm like quite strong for my for my weight, and I always remember when I was uh, doing weights with Dan Strauss once, and I think he was trying to compliment me. He was like, "You look so normal, but then you're strong." And I think he said, "I do not look strong at all, but I'm." Um, yeah, like strangely I, I, strong for my size. I watch his uh, his Instagram videos. They're ridiculous. Yeah, have you seen the one where he uses me as a kettlebell? He does like the oh, was that Turkish getup with me, and then he picks up an anvil while he's holding me up there. Yeah, yeah, I did, I did, I did a Turkish get up once with my niece when she was about seven. Yeah, that's as much seven. as I've managed with yeah. <laughs> with a person Turkish getup as well. Yeah, I was I was quite happy with that. I think <laughs> I've still got like a little video on an old phone. Somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Of that before she grew a bit. I saw her two weeks later. I was like, yeah, no, can't can't do it again. Um, anything else that I haven't asked you that I should have asked you about training or other things? Hmm, let's have a think. Competition, training. Will you will you carry on training forever? I hope so. Well, I think that's that's the plan, isn't it? You can compete up to masters. You can seven, compete forever, six, can't you? Seven. You can you compete for. I think Master Seven is the oldest they have, but if you're older than that, you can still enter Master Seven. You can still enter adult if you wanted to. Yeah, so, probably not at that age. Nah, but I think um, yeah, I'd I'd like to. I think that's the idea, isn't it? I was reading um, a book called Ikigai recently. It's it's about the sort of Japanese approach to um, longevity and having living a long and happy life, basically. And they've they've gone to like the the part of Japan where people live for the longest and they've looked at their the way they the way they live and their, their whole lifestyle patterns and it seems to be that movement mm-hmm. is and and keeping keeping your mind busy mm. are that's that's the recipe and they were saying that there's nobody sits on a bench there's no old people sitting on benches doing nothing they're all busy mm. and that's not to say they're productive in the sort of western capitalist sense of the word but just that they 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 find their ikigai they find their purpose um and they they want to keep working Mm. because work isn't a chore it's not like oh i'm just doing this to earn money it's what they love to do and most of that comes from busy mind busy body as well yeah i i think um i i watched uh ted talk on there's a there's another place maybe it's uh in Italy somewhere, where again they've got a really, really old mm-hmm. population, like the average age like hundred and one or something. Yeah. And um the the woman who was looking at, at those guys, which which again sort of it it does fit with jujitsu, um, she said that the 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 number one predictor of uh living a long time is um having like a sort of a community. Yeah, having a lot. Yeah, of that bonds. was the other thing. Yeah, 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 with 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 other people. So again, you know, jujitsu sort of fulfills that as well. Yeah, because you're in a group with other people. Yeah, you know, you have a lot of interaction. Have you have you seen um, Jiro Dreams of Sushi? Mm-mm. Ah, sounds like something I would like though. You'll love it. It's um, 
It's the most expensive restaurant in the world. Mm -hmm. It's a little size of this room, kind of bar, sushi bar. Mm -hmm. um, I think in one of the train stations. Okay. Um, and the guy who, I mean, the film, it must be maybe like six, seven years old now, but the, the Giro, the guy who owns it, he's like 90 years old. Mm -hmm. And his, his son doesn't work there anymore. His son's opened his own one. But basically this guy's been making sushi for like 80 years. He might be mentioned kid. in that book actually. Yeah, it probably is. It could is. well have been him. It, it's, it is, it's really beautifully filmed. Yeah. So they, you know, they show like these amazing nigiri, like really HG, HD yeah. giant sort of still photos of them. But you should watch that. Yeah, it's it's amazing about, um, he's got this, this guy who works there who, you know, the omelette where they do the yeah, omelette yeah. and they roll them up. Um, that this, this guy is saying like he, he, um, he just, when he started working there, he's, he, Jiro sort of showed him how to make the omelette. And then he was like, right, that's you just that's all you do. Yeah. Just all day, just make omelette, make you know, they, they they have like one serving a day. Yeah. So most of them he's throwing away. He's just looking at them and saying, No, that shit, throw yeah. it away. Do it again, do it again. And this guy says, like, you know, after about six months I made one and he said it was good and I started crying, you know, because <laughs> it's like it has to be perfect. Yeah. I like I love that though, the idea of like taking so much pride in some pride in something and it doesn't have to be overly complicated. Yeah, piece like of simplicity fish on is, some rice. Is everything. And that's that's the, the Japanese way, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and that's the and that's the um I mean that's the other component of Brazilian jujitsu is the Japanese the original jujitsu, yeah. right? So it so it, I think it does it does hopefully straddle those two cultures. Which are very different, right? Brazilian culture oh, yeah. is very sort of flamboyant and yeah. casual, and it's like Japanese the antithesis is, of Japanese culture, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So it's a ways. nice, it's a nice uh, fusion. Yeah, yeah. Nice which balance. Is, which is why we all get obsessed with it. Yeah, exactly. Which is why everybody should do jujitsu. Yeah. If you if you are relatively able bodied, yeah, you should if be training. If you're not able bodied enough to do judo, do jujitsu. <laughs> Yeah, judo is really brutal. brutal like right? I, I train judo. Um, I find it hard to really commit to judo because I'm terrified of it. Like I love it. I absolutely lo I love. I love all the Japanese names. Um, I love the biomechanics of judo, but actually training it. I saw a really horrific injury a few weeks ago as well. I had a double leg break. It was just, and just a freak accident with the lightest person in the room as well. Mm. As in the she was sparring with the lightest person in the room. Um, and that, that again, shook me and I'm like, oh, I'm scared to go back to judo, even though I do really enjoy it. Yeah. But I always remember Dara O'Connell saying, he's got, he's a very wise man. He said, there's three sports you don't take up after you're 30 and that's judo, wrestling and rugby. And I understand that because I feel like my body's just not conditioned for it. Yeah. And it's very hard to condition your body for those sports after you turn 30. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I was going to say. I think, I think judo is, is a young person's mm sport when you when you start because if you, you start it young yeah, yeah you have to you have to sort of um your body has to yes get conditioned but also just sort of learn that unconscious way to to not injure itself yeah you know those those points where your body automatically goes no just just shift yeah. a little bit because and otherwise you break your leg Akil was saying this the other day that he he grew up doing judo and he said he didn't really appreciate how 
how important it was to do it as a child because you know, he comes to Carson's and trains with the adults and sort of dashes them about and stuff. And he was like, oh, I just didn't realise how much like timing you get as a youngster and also um, how your body is conditioned for it. But also, he's also injured and he said a little bit of time out of judo, all it takes is the slightest bit of mistiming and his knees popped mm. or his hips popped. And then he's he's out of training for two months. And he said he did, uh, I think it was Sumigeshi uh, a couple of months ago. And he undone judo since. Because um, mm. it just made him realize. And, you know, he still he still finished the throw. But he's, he's like, man, the, the tiniest error in judo is a catastrophic injury. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a nice thing I, I think in that in that sense about jujitsu is that you really you should be able to keep training as long as you want. Yeah. Because you know you're you are quite supported on the mat once mm -hmm. you get down to the mat. Yeah. Um, you know, there is there is much less potential for injuries because you you've got less far to fall effectively. Yeah. And you can you can work around things. I mean, I, I always think it's funny to watch at a tournament, the different weight classes and age classes. Like if you watch like the Masters super heavyweight men, it looks like a different sport to adult rooster weight women. Yes. It looks like a complete... And I love that about it, that the sport is so varied, is that you can have this sort of head-to-head -head bulls fighting thing, or you can have this really intricate grip battle with like spinning upside down stuff. And I think that's that's really cool. That's not even a criticism of those head-to-head -head clashes it's I think it's really cool that jiu-jitsu is that varied and that you can cater it to be what you want it to be mm. yeah so so um one one well three things actually that I, that I, that I want to ask you because uh Gosha was saying to me oh you need to have some questions that you ask on every podcast okay. and I was like oh what question should I ask so um my first question is what's your earliest memory what in life yeah my earliest memory is this is really weird but i remember lying in a cot in a real in like what felt like a cupboard and just being like why is it dark in here and i know that sounds really odd but when i asked my parents about it they were like oh yeah your first bedroom was basically a cupboard it was absolutely tiny so like it was harry like, potter it's like a real memory I, th I thought i'd made it up but yeah that's a real memory that was the first real memory okay. yeah and i know that's like be probably before i could even speak i don't know <laughs> yeah so the the second one will be a, an easier one okay hopefully what's your favorite flavor of ice cream oh that's tough <laughs> i love ice cream um or brand or I mean, whatever. it depends on the day, doesn't it? It does. Like, it really does, you know, whether you want something super sweet or not. Um, I love mint choc chip, and I know that's controversial because some people think that mint is only for brushing your teeth, but I like mint choc chip, and I'm going to commit to that. And who makes the best mint choc chip? Um, I'm going to say oh, Joe's Ice Cream in Swansea. Joe's, shout out to Joe's Ice Cream in Swansea. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to look them up. I'll tag you on my Insta there's, post. There's, there's rival ice cream places in South Wales because there's a big influx of Italians um, during oh, like after, ice after cream World War II. So, yes, there's a bit of ice cream war. And it's either Verdi's <laughs> or Joe's in, in Swansea. And I'm, I'm Joe's going is for Joe's. at the yeah. moment. Okay, shout out to Joe's ice cream. And then and then my third question, uh, uh, I mean, maybe you can tell me. I'm, I'm torn between two. So one of them's one of them's obviously maybe more controversial than the other. So one choice for the third question is if you could have one free kill oh. 
Yeah, which most people are like, oh, I don't want to commit to that. So then, so then the, the other one is, what's the secret to life? Secret to life? Yeah. Oh, I got to go with Ikigai then, haven't I? Got to go finding, finding your purpose that is something that benefits the universe, that brings you joy, that you can make money off, should that be necessary for you. And what's the other thing? There's a fourth fourth element that I can't think of. Right are those the, the four that yeah, are covered that's, in that's the book? Yeah, that's what Ikigai means. But, and I don't think this is right, but I think something that you can do for forever, something you want to die doing. So, you know, like actors say that they would when, like to drop When you're old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not, not, like, not on Tuesday. I mean, I'm, I'm convinced I'm going to die young, but... <laughs> really? Yeah, I, I, I think it's good to accept that because I think then you can live your life more freely. <laughs> hmm. I don't yeah. want to. I'm just saying I, I've always been sure that's going to happen. <laughs> really? Yeah, I don't know why. Oh, okay. I remember. I remember when I was in India, um, going from the airport to the shala we were staying in, and you know what the roads are like in India? It's ab- absolutely bonkers. And I just, initially I was like, <gasps> and I thought I'm going to die on a on an Indian road, and I thought. I just want it to be on the way back to the airport, so at least I can have a month in India first. And once I'd accepted that, I was fine. How did you do yoga when you were there yeah. in, in India? Is that yeah. what, what you went for? Yeah, yoga yeah, I went retreat? for a, like a yoga teacher training thing. How was that? It was amazing. It was good. Yeah, so so good. I absolutely absolutely loved it. The birthplace of yoga. Yep. So were you in like a were you in a retreat? Like a um, kind yeah, of... it was a it was a yoga teacher training center. Um, some people just went there just as a retreat, um, but there was like a group of I think thirty of us doing yoga teacher training there. I mean, I'd been doing, um, I was like being mentored as a yoga teacher before that anyway. So I just went there to get the qualification. But I was amazing. And the holiday, and the yeah, experience. and a, yeah, an incredible yeah. experience. No, no, I have to go to finish my teacher training. <laughs> I just wanted to go to India for a month. Yeah, very nice. Um, how can people follow you and uh, contact you? Um, so we are on Instagram. We are at Grange Jiu Jitsu, um, ealingbjj.com. And then I'm um, at EJP, that's double E J A Y P E A on Instagram. Um, but yeah, I'm I'll, not I'll particularly put, active on there, I'll be honest. I'll put, I'll put links on the, on the show notes. So, um, yeah, if you guys are looking for a club in or near Ealing, Tuesday to Friday. Mm-hmm. You're opening on the fourth, 18th. 18th. So, yeah. yeah. So maybe just about by the time this this is released, the the club will be open. So go down and check them out. Um, thank you very much for coming down. Thank you for having me. This is yeah, fun. It was, it was a good it was a good conversation. Nice to nice to uh, mix it up a bit. Come back to the to the jujitsu yeah. guests. Um, so thanks for listening guys. Um, follow the podcast, uh, at white basement pod on Instagram and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>